implication of the implementation of the examples as anti-Semitism um, has really grave um, consequences, we feel, for freedom of speech. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. Human rights defenders in Canada have released a report on the impact that suppression of speech regarding Palestine and Palestinian rights is having on activists, students, faculty, and organizations who continue to face sweeping reprisals, intimidation, and harassment campaigns. As our next guest writes, there is a connection to be made here between these attacks and efforts by pro-Israel advocacy groups to market the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism, as we say, the IHRA, a document that has come under vigorous attack by defenders of academic freedom and Palestinian human rights. We're delighted to have Cheryl Nestle with us on the podcast today. She's a retired sociologist and a full-time activist. She's also one of the co-authors of the report entitled Unveiling the Chilly Climate, the Suppression of Speech on Palestine in Canada. The report is being released by Independent Jewish Voices Canada. Cheryl, thank you so much for being with us today on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thanks for having me, Nora. This is exciting. Oh, good. Yes, we're excited to have you. Um, we've reported for years on the escalating tactics of oppression by Israel lobby groups who have been using the IHRA definition to silence and censor speech critical of Israel. Let's talk first about what the IHRA definition is to remind our listeners and viewers and what compelled you and your co-author Rowan Godet to compile this detailed analysis of the impact that the IHRA has had already on Canada specifically. Well, the IHRA has a very has a very long and very sketchy history. Um, for those who really want to dig deep, I highly recommend uh, Anthony Lerman's new book, "Whatever Happened to Anti-Semitism: uh, Redefinition and the Myth of the Collective Jew," which will give you every detail you ever wanted to know about the IHRA and its use and misuse. Um, so, just to give a very brief summary. Um, the, the definition of anti-Semitism that is now known as the IHRA was developed in uh, the early 2000s. Um, it probably uh, was kicked off uh, because of the Durban uh, anti-racism conference and allegations of anti-Semitism there. Um, it, it's a very benign uh, definition itself of just a few sentences. Um, the problem arises or arose when 11 examples of anti-Semitism were added to the definition. There's even a, a, a question as to whether there was an official adoption of the, of the examples, but nonetheless, seven out of the 11 examples involve criticism of Israel. Um, so therefore, it, and, and the, the push to adopt this definition, which has been very vigorous, um, universally around the world in institutions by states by you know civil organizations has been extremely aggressive um and and the implication of 
the implementation of the examples as anti-Semitism um, has really grave um, consequences we feel for freedom of speech, for freedom of expression, for criticism of Israel. Um, so the odd thing about it, the, the place it's been, the two places where it's been implemented with the greatest deleterious effects have been Germany and the United Kingdom. Um, the United Kingdom actually mandated that every university in the country needed to pass the IHRA or have their funding rescinded. So they haven't actually made good on that threat uh, completely, but the IHRA continues to be used to um, persecute uh, pro-Palestine activists um, on campus, for example, and in other places, and there have been examples of um, firings, etc. Uh, David Miller, who is a British academic who is just summarily fired from his job. Um, and there are many, many, many examples in the UK. One of the things we do in the report is to try and give people who aren't familiar with what's going on an overview of how suppression is being experienced, uh, mostly in Europe uh, and in North America. Um, so, you know, the, the ITRA, while it purports to allow criticism of Israel in actual practice, it doesn't do that. In actual practice, it does use criticism of Israel as, um, you know, the, the, uh, the way uh, certain kinds of sentiments and expressions are evaluated as to whether or not they're anti-Semitism. So it's a very, <clears throat> the threat of the IHRA is sort of what we started out to, to document in our report. That was the original impetus for it because Independent Jewish Voices Canada has one of the most successful campaigns in the world against the IHRA. We managed to get the Canadian University, uh, Canadian Association of University Teachers to pass a unanimous resolution, not for, you know, to oppose the adoption on university campuses. 40 faculty associations in Canada have um, have signed uh, a pledge not to adopt the IHRA um, and we've defeated it in, in several uh, places in Canada, including very recently uh, at a school board. Um, so it, it what we started out to, to look at was how are people experiencing not the IHRA being implemented, but the threat of it being implemented. Are people changing, particularly in academia, where I think it has some very far-reaching, um, it can have some very far-reaching effects. Um, so we really concentrated on academia. So we, what we wanted to know is, are students not pursuing activism because they're afraid of the IHRA and afraid of being censured or accused of anti-Semitism? What are faculty doing? Um, what is the content of their class? syllabus, um, how is that responding to the threats of the IHRA? Um, we eventually expanded it um, to include all kinds of harassment, suppression, silencing of speech, which I think was the right thing to do. Um, but the IHRA still figures really um, prominently in the work that we did uh, in terms of it being the front of mind for a lot of people. It's like, I don't want to express pro-Palestinian sentiment or teach pro-Palestinian uh, curricular material um, 
because I'm going to be accused of anti-Semitism, which could impact my career, um, which could make my life very difficult. As we saw from the testimonies, that is in fact what has happened. I want to get back to 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 that in a moment, just to talk about like the the impact of just the threat of the imposition of the IHRA. But um, let's talk a little bit about uh, how the IHRA has been promoted by Israel lobby groups. Um, the proponents of the IHRA definition, both in Canada and here in the U.S., keep trying to make it about protecting Jewish students on campuses or making a so-called safe space for Israeli or Zionist identity, as though Zionism, which is a political ideology, was a personal identity with some sort of protected class status. And they say that the IHRA is not meant to threaten freedom of speech or freedom of expression, but it does just that. Um, can you talk about what basic rights are already being threatened and, and how further adoption of the definition would impact Palestine uh, rights activism and advocacy. So let me start with this question of Jewish student safety on campus, because it's something that I think about a lot. Um, what we've seen like in the very recent, in very recent history <clears throat> are reports that are coming out, supposed research reports, um, about Jewish students feeling threatened on campus or experiencing anti-Semitism. I think if you look at almost every single one of them with a few exceptions, they are methodologically basically indefensible um, in terms of who they chose to interview, how they defined anti-Semitism. Um, and I think the biggest, and, and to me, I'm really hoping our report is a, is a kind of a counterpoint to this. Um, and I think one of the important things to remember always if you're reading these reports of Jewish lack of safety on campus is that these are one-off incidents for the most part. They're often, and I don't want to defend them in any way, shape, or form, and I've certainly heard um, students talk about attacks that they've undergone um, that are anti-Semitic, and there's no excuse for that. Um, most of them are what you might call microaggressions, unless you start talking about pro-Palestine activism. So if you're, if a student says, when I see a Palestinian flag, this offends me, it scares me, it makes me feel unsafe, that's a lot different from having, you know, your kippah, you know, snatched off your head as you're walking on campus. It's a political expression. Um, if you're fearful of it, I think you have to ask yourself why you're fearful of it. But to make a more important point, um, what we see in the report and from the interviews and from the data that we collected is that the attacks and the suppression and the harassment that is going on is part of a concerted project and effort. It's fun. I know, I know it's always very dangerous to say this, but it's funded. It's We know that it's funded. Um, we actually survey all the different organizations that were named by our respondents as being behind attacks that they suffered. Um, and we know that there is an organized mechanism behind that. There is no such thing on the other side. There is no such thing on the pro-Palestinian side as a, even though they sometimes claim there is, uh, as a concerted, funded, well-coordinated campaign. There is no such thing. And I think many of the, the real anti-Semitic incidents are sort of one-off um, 
you know, again, indefensible, but they are individual. And if you want to define Palestine activism as as anti-Semitic, then you're going to be able to document a whole bunch of things that I would disagree with their being categorized as anti-Semitic. Um, yeah, and uh, so in terms of the threat of, of what the IHRA um, is doing, I kind of talked about it a bit before, but again, people like, one of the things that's happening, one of my, uh, one of the people I interviewed um, is an expert in Islamophobia. Um, and she has been investigated by the funding, the federal funding agency for academic work, um, initiated by B'nai B'rith, uh, the, the um, you know, inundated with Freedom of Information Act and um, requests for her emails and everything. Um, and it is, so that's the kind of thing that people are really fearing that they will be investigated for the work that they do. Um, what, there are so many things in the report that are disturbing. I mean, one of the things is that several of the academics we interviewed talked about how their work on Palestine that they had submitted to academic journals got lost. <laughs> was They were told it would be published and when the journal or the book came out, it was not there. Um, they were given feedback uh, about the work that was clearly coming from a Zionist perspective and therefore would render the work, you know, unpublishable um, in that journal. Um, people talked about, academics, professors talked about giving up writing about Palestine because it was just too dangerous and too um, threatening to their career path. Um, so there's a lot of people having to silence themselves. Um, several of them talked about being um, monitored and surveilled by Jewish students who belong to campus um, pro-Israel organizations, and then having what the professor said in class reported to the dean or to the university president, and then being called into the office to be, you know, not necessarily chastised, but to discuss um, this. So people are very, very, and the, you know, one of, one of the people we interviewed said, this takes up so much time and energy that I don't have time to do the stuff I'm really supposed to do, like, you know, meet with my students, discuss their work. Um, so these are all, uh, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're a waste of time for a lot of, in a lot of senses. But it's also happening, the surveillance is happening very frequently and people have told us about it. So you walk into the classroom as a professor and you have to, not that you don't do this anyway, uh, watch every single word that you say when it comes to Palestine, Israel and Jews. Um, so where does that leave you? I mean, people have been told, people told us that, you know, certain you know, scholarly work like Patrick Wolf's work on settler colonialism, that they don't dare put it on the syllabus because it will be called out, even though this is, these, this stuff is considered canonical, you know, in the field in which it is situated. Um, so to me, this is very scary from the knowledge production perspective that there is a, I mean, you know, if this succeeds, it's a very scary prospect. It means that 
you know, academic work on Palestine, with ex some exceptions, is is going to be minimized, or you know, there'll be much less of it done than uh, might be done otherwise. Um, this is we found that it's there are two groups that are especially affected by this. One is pre-tenure and people on the job, pre-tenure people, people on the job market who are afraid to even mention the word Palestine, anything they do in their CV or anything for fear of being seen as, you know, a threat. Uh, and the other, of course, is racialized and Muslim and Arab uh, and particularly Palestinian scholars. So, you know, the, the quotes from our Palestinian scholars that we interviewed are the most heart-wrenching of all the quotes in the report because they're, they felt that their entire identities are erased. They're unable to talk about themselves as human beings, right? Because they would have to reveal, um, you know, their histories and their traumas. Um, and, you know, the fact that they are being silenced is extremely painful, extremely painful. So I, I think this is borne out by, this is the only report of its kind. There's only one other thing that we found that was even similar, which was uh, a study uh, done of Middle East and North African scholars to ask about their work on um, on the Middle East and how that has affected them. Uh, the, it was really uncanny because I found it late in the writing of the report, but found that so many of the responses that Laura Deeb and Jessica Winnegar got were almost identical to what we got, even though they were not interviewing activists. They were only interviewing, you know, run-of-the-mill scholars in that area. So <clears throat> you can imagine that when you're interviewing activists, you have a lot more of these awful stories. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, let's talk about some of the activists that you interviewed um, and the differences between um you know, students and faculty in academia dealing, you know, especially the non-tenured ones dealing with having to self-censor and then the more external facing, you know, activists organizing for Palestinian rights, especially those of Palestinian or Arab descent uh, in the streets uh, of Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver. How, uh, what are the differences that you found and um, and and how has just even the threat, uh, besides the implementation of, of the IHRA, affected activism in Canada? Um, well, I'll start with the students versus faculty. Um, what we found is that um, the threats against students were much more violent than they were against faculty. Um, so there were threats. Uh, the students who we interviewed reported threats of sexual violence. Um, sexual slurs, um, homophobic um, utterances, which I found very, you know, disturbing. Like, where does that even fit into this? I, I think it fits into the kind of the homophobic view of the Islamic world that, you know, it's not, it's a lib, it's, it's anti-liberal, et cetera. So if you are identified as a, as a Muslim or a Palestinian or an Arab, you're seen to belong to a world that is not in sync, you know, with modern values, et cetera. Um, one of the things that students experienced more than faculty, although the faculty uh, experienced it as well, was being disciplined 
by administration and being threatened by administration and being subject to administrative um, surveillance and and um, and sh shutting down, for example, of events. So one of the common things we find is that if a group like you know um, SPHR organized a, a, an online uh, campus activity, you know days before the activity is supposed to go on, they're told they have to come up with $3,000 for security. And of course, you know, these groups have no money, so there's no way of doing this at all. So you either have to take the event off campus, which is, you know, serious and difficult, um, but also disciplinary measures by university administrators and, you know, being hauled into the dean's office and being lectured about, you know, what a mess you're making of your life, et cetera, et cetera. So we have several of those. Um, we have a lot of that in the U.S. too. I mean, that is oh, a yeah. common story. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, these things are so parallel. Like, the, you know, the the events and incidents that Palestine legal documents and the European Legal um, Support Center document um, are, you know, they're all very similar to what to what we've documented. Um, and of course, in the report, there are two separate parts. There's the the cataloging of the events. So we've cataloged both Europe as much as we could and and, um, uh, and Canada. Uh, and we see a growing number of events as the years, we start out in 2009. By the time you get to tw you know 2022, you've got a much longer list going on. So you've got one of the, the tactics that's used by the um, pro-Israel folks is, and particularly B'nai B'rith is litigation. So I know in the states this is a big deal, and the you know legal um, attacks are are very common. <laughs> we started to see them here. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Luckily, um, they've lost almost every single legal challenge, so that's great. Um, but it doesn't stop them from engaging people. You know, having people having to organize defense and money, et cetera, et cetera, in order not to be, you know, on the wrong side of the legal decision. Um, so you have that, but you have, you know, a lot of it is just discursive and putting out slurs and slander and, and alarming articles and, you know, calling people terrorists and, so there's a lot of that, and it's gotten much, much worse in the last few years. The, it's gotten really bad toward Jewish Palestine solidarity activists. So the Jewish community has really, you know, got a bee in their bonnet about Jews who do this kind of work. And there have been some really, really toxic, the, the discourse has gotten very toxic around Jews who do this work, um, which is interesting. So, and we do have Jews in the report because we're a Jewish organization, Many of the people we, we we interviewed were Jews, and they did not escape the the attacks that others uh, have also experienced. Um, yeah, so that's um, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, we have a, a really so we have the 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 cataloging of everything as much as we could possibly find and put in there, and then we have you know the 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 empirical data that we gathered from our respondents. Um, so that's going to be two different things. What's happening, you know, to one individual professor in one individual department is not necessarily what Simon Wiesenthal Center or the B'nai B'rith are putting on their website or going after. So, 
you know, if somebody writes on your Palestine solidarity poster on the out on your wall on your door of your office, um, a slur of some sort, you know, that's not going to make the news. But it's part of an ongoing, you know, kind of pile up of of harassing activities. Um, so that's what we're trying to get at. It's like, what is people's experience of this that isn't necessarily public knowledge? Um, and I think we really, you know, managed to to get a treasure trove, if you can call it that, of of uh, of what's going on, you know, under the surface, because um, it's pretty awful. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. yeah. As a sociologist, as someone who has studied <laughs> um, this for a long time and has been in uh, Palestine solidarity activism circles for decades. Was there anything uh, that surprised you when you and your co-author um, compiled this report and looked at the data? Um, I, there are a lot. I, I was. There are several things that surprised me. Um, I was surprised by the um, amount of administrative um, interference. Um, I think one of the things some of your listeners may know about the uh, Azarova case here at the University of Toronto, where yep. Valentina Azarova was, you know, was a, a legal scholar who did work on Palestine, who was hired to head the human rights department at the University of Toronto Law School. And there was intervention on the part of a judge who is affiliated with the Center for Israel Jewish Affairs um, to try and get the law school not to hire her. Um, this is, you know, there was, it turned out there was a, the um, Canadian Association of University Teachers censured the University of Toronto. Um, and a lot of people refused to cooperate with the University of Toronto. It was a very strong measure that is very rarely taken. Um, in any case, the, um, you know, that level of interference is, is very public and very well known. But one of the things that we found was interference into hiring in other places where sometimes Jewish students or Jewish faculty got together and said, we can't have this person who is identified as pro-Palestinian or as Palestinian um, in our department because it would be a threat to us as Jews. Um, and, that, and, and you have, of course, administrators paying attention to this and acting accordingly. So, you know, while there have been battles in these places, it hasn't stopped anyone from unashamedly coming out and saying these things and trying to influence the hiring process on a basis that has nothing to do with the scholarship of the people involved. So you have that, which I think is very, very disturbing to me. Um, I think the toxicity of some of it, it's something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, the atmosphere has become extremely toxic around this. And of course, people who are Palestine solidarity activists or pro-Palestine are subject to all kinds of, of you know, name calling, et cetera, terrorists, terrorist supporters. Um, you know, they just seem, they seem to be unable to have a, a, you know, measured conversation about this topic without resorting to these characterizations, this kind of name calling. And it's, um, you know, there's something, I mean, there's an atmosphere in general these days 
of, of toxic discourse. And it certainly has infiltrated the Israel-Palestine debate here. Definitely. Incredible. So those are some of the things. And, and some of the threats of violence, I think, are very... Uh, are very yeah. uh, it's against the students. Um, there were fewer against the faculty, um, but some of the things that have happened to students are really very, very disturbing. Um, I think all of it is disturbing, to be honest with you. It's yeah. um, I, I'm more concerned about the the whole issue of how do you bring the Palestinian narrative um, forward if you are going to be intimidated by the IHRA or by administrative intervention, um, you know, or by, I mean, you know, one of the things that has not been settled in terms of the IHRA is what legal teeth it has. And there's a huge debate about that. So as of now in Canada, nobody has used the IHRA. It's been passed in several places, including Ontario, the province that I live in, but nobody has used it to do anything. Um, so we're kind of waiting for that to happen so we can actually mount a legal challenge and question how it was that the I-Cherry was brought in. Because it was brought in behind our backs. It, there was supposed to be a vote in the provincial legislature. And the day before the, the testimonies were to begin, they brought it in in what's called an order in council. And this is a tactic that's happening we're seeing it everywhere it happened in several canadian provinces and i think it's happening in the states as well you just bring it in it's not a democratic process uh it gets mandated and there you go that's so right. but we still don't know we don't know what legal validity if any it has yeah i mean the um i think it was in 2019 uh the trudeau administration announced that it would formally adopt the IHRA definition, um, containing it in their so-called uh, strategy to combat racism and discrimination. Um, and then Trudeau commissioned Erwin Kotler, who is like this longtime Israel lobbyist and strategist to be like the anti-Semitism czar. Um, I mean, how, <laughs> how like, how has, you know, it, you know, it was implemented in kind of this crazy way. And then, of course, Doug Ford, the premier, you know, like pushed it, pushed it in, as you said, without any democratic process. But um, how have people been pushing back against these attempts to 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 codify it into Canadian law, either provincially or locally? And what can people here in the States or in Europe learn uh, from those efforts? Well, I th this is a really good question and an important question. Um, when we first started to work against the IHRA in 2019, I think in January, we started our campaign. Um, we were really out there on our own, independent Jewish voices. Um, and we had, even though we tried to recruit, for example, um, Palestinian Muslim and Arab allies to help us put forward that this is a danger, um, because of the kinds of attacks that that pro-palestinian groups and individuals suffer i think many of these groups were really afraid to stick their necks out around this which is completely and totally understandable um in as we moved along in trying to build campaigns um we did find allies and eventually we built um coalitions of um academics uh palestinian arab and muslim um, allies and Jews, 
who for each of their own reasons opposes the IHRA. Like we, we all, I mean, there are many reasons to oppose the IHRA, um, but, but working in coalition was absolutely the key to success. So we've had the success in academia is unprecedented. Nowhere else has this happened. Um, and I think it's because it's so clear to academics that this is a violation of academic freedom and freedom of speech. Um, and in terms of the, of the racialized communities and the Arab Muslim and Palestinian groups, um, you know, it's very, very clear that, that that kind of, I won't call it legislation, that kind of policy is going to have a negative impact on their ability to speak out about Palestine and even you know, the image of Arabs, Muslims, and Palestinians, and, you know, the in the post 9-11 era, which is, you know, every, they have all suffered tremendously, this is just kind of another slap in the face, because um, it says that, you know, things that you care about that you think are important, you know, we're, we're going to suppress that, because we don't think it's, it's worth listening to, and it impinges on the rights of another group. So it's uh, the pushback is difficult. It's slow. Um, it, you have to meticulously build your coalitions and your you know re relationships with allies. But for us, that has been the key because we have we weren't able to move forward with this until we had built those those coalitions. So that's you know that's that's the lesson that we've learned here. And of course, it's very productive and it's satisfying. And um, yeah, and as Jews. You know, we know how important it is to lend, you know, our credibility to those efforts, to even to spearhead those efforts, because, you know, we we want to protect is not the right word. We want to deflect these attacks from our allies um, and try and point out that they're these are valid criticisms. Um, so, you know, it, it isn't we are often targets, too. I've had I've been harassed, et cetera, et cetera. I just had a, I'm waiting any minute now for a case. I um, received a harassing email about a year ago from a, a, a guy out in British Columbia and he was foolish enough to leave his information on it. Uh, I found out he was a lawyer. I um, lodged a complaint with the British Columbia Law Society, which is like the, you know, like the, what's it called in the States? The, um, law, the Bar Association. Bar Association. Yeah. And he got convicted of, of this. He has to pay a big fine. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is not the only thing I've Good. Other <laughs> as well. But it was very satisfying, very yeah. satisfying to do this. So, you know, I mean, it's, you have to push back in a million different ways. And of course we are under resourced in terms of this. Yeah. So I think we're punching way above our weight in terms of, of what we've managed to accomplish. But every time we, it's like, we call it, it's whack-a-mole. Every time you turn around, it's popping up somewhere and you have to immediately, you know, um, organize to, to, we just had this at a school board, a school board was bringing it. And we, um, we didn't have a lot of time to get organized about it, but we organized a webinar. There were three Jewish speakers. Um, and I think that had a huge impact. We translated it into Mandarin because so many of the people in this school board area uh, our speakers of Mandarin, and we won. <laughs> we won Fantastic. it. I, I was not expecting it at all. Totally not expecting <laughs> it's it. Incredible. It's good. good. Well, may many more victories for justice and freedom of speech uh, follow in in that path. 
Uh, Cheryl Nestle, the, uh, where can people find the report? Um, is it at uh, Independent Jewish Voices Canada? It isn't yet. It will be next Wednesday, October 12th. If you go to our website again, you will find, you'll be able to download the report. report. It is 110 pages long with 220 footnotes, because when you do this kind of work, you got to get it right. Yes. So, yes. Know. You have to be meticulous. Yeah. yeah. You got to be meticulous. <laughs> you got to be meticulous. So we'd love for people to read it, to circulate it, um, to give us comments. That would be great. And to replicate it, more more importantly, to replicate it. And there is, there is talk, various organizations have decided to try and replicate it. So we're hoping that it'll have an impact. Wonderful. Cheryl Nestle, uh, you are a longtime activist, retired sociologist, and the co-author of this brand new report put out by Independent Jewish Voices Canada. Uh, it's called Unveiling the Chilly Climate, the Suppression of Speech on Palestine in Canada. And uh, we'll put a link to ijvcanada.org up on the podcast blog post that accompanies this episode. Cheryl, thank you so much for all of your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, Nora. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.